Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number one, Second Samuel, the introduction, and chapter one. Well, as is customary, I begin each new book of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, with an introduction so that we have a sense of what to expect. And as we're entering the second book of Samuel today, we're going to have that introduction, and we're also going to get a little into the first chapter. However, the introduction is going to be of a little bit different flavor than usual. We're going to necessarily get very historical. Now, because the Bible focuses so intensely on Israel, the Hebrew people, their land inheritance of Canaan, we can get a bit of tunnel vision and lose sight that there was much of significance occurring in the nations surrounding Israel that would at some point have a profound impact upon Israel's future. Only a meager bit of information concerning these nations outside of the Holy Land are reported in the scriptures. And this is at least partially because the writers of the biblical books were Hebrews. And they were primarily concerned with with what immediately affected them. Now a rather isolated focus on our own nation and cultures is typical for most of us. In the modern era, it was World War II when the average American began to acknowledge that there was a world beyond our borders. For several decades, we didn't see how what was going on elsewhere in places like Europe and Asia was bound to eventually affect us. In our day, that issue has shifted so far towards an integration and interweaving of international affairs with our own American society that a great debate is underway about a steady erosion in our national sovereignty and culture and national identity that seems to be hurtling us at light speed towards a single unified world government and monetary system. One side of this debate finds such a global, governmental, and societal integration that virtually dissolves borders, ends nationalism, is healthy, desirable, if not inevitable. The other side sees it as aberrant, of the devil. And it's the prophetic means, perhaps, of ushering in that great world leader and deceiver that Christianity calls the Antichrist. Ancient Israel's leaders and citizenry soon after David's time would, just like modern America, face this same philosophical, geopolitical dilemma with strong opinions on the matter. And this wide divergence of desires among the Israelites ignited passions that quickly led to civil war and the splitting of Israel into two separately governed kingdoms almost immediately following King Solomon's death. But the set of circumstances that caused this disillusion 
of God's earthly kingdom didn't develop overnight. Didn't happen in a vacuum. The Lord was invisibly and undetected operating behind the scenes of human government as only His unstoppable providential will can to bring about a long-term plan that while centering on Israel would also eventually incorporate the entire planet. The many nations outside of Israel had become unwitting players in Jehovah's plan. Well, we're all at least somewhat aware of the Assyrian and the Babylonian empires that would conquer parts of Israel and drive the Israelites into exile in a a number of stages. But even in David's time, Egypt was also re-emerging from its dark ages. And there were also other serious players beginning to appear on the the world stage that consisted of this time primarily the Middle East and Northern Africa. And these nations would in one way or another play a role in redemption history. So let's take a little bit of time to see what was going on in the nations surrounding Israel at the same time that David was well on his way to becoming Israel's king. Because David would have been quite aware of these circumstances. And this would have played a role in his many decisions that we see recorded in 2 Samuel. Now let's approach this by dividing the known world up into five main geopolitical regions. Mesopotamia, northern Syria, the Phoenician coast... Canaan, um, and then Egypt far to the, to the south. And certainly, this is not an exhaustive list. And other regions were known, they could be defined. But these five had the most direct effect upon Israel and upon biblical matters. So we're going to stick to them. Now the Israelites always had a sense of attachment to Mesopotamia. Because that's where the founder of their race, Abraham, came from. After migrating to Canaan at God's leading and establishing the covenant of promise with Jehovah upon which all future covenants would depend, Abraham sent his servant back to Mesopotamia to find a wife for his son, Isaac. Later on, Isaac's son, Jacob, fled to Mesopotamia to escape the wrath of his twin brother. And there he found his wife, and he started a family before moving back to to Canaan. In reality, Mesopotamia also represents a distant attachment to virtually all the world's races and tribes, because the ark that carried the remnants of humanity through the great flood came to rest on Mount Ararat in Mesopotamia. Those of us who are alive today, you, me, everybody, everybody on planet Earth 
can count Mesopotamia as our earliest homeland and even representative of our earliest common culture and language dating back to when the earth was purged of its wickedness by Jehovah. During David's time up in Mesopotamia, the nation of Assyria already was in existence. They were in a struggle for sovereignty, if not outright existence, with the powerful Arameans. Babylonia also existed at this time. And Assyria hoped to demonstrate through its fierce resistance to the Arameans that eh, maybe Babylonia was an easier target for them. All right? And it succeeded to some small degree. Well, even so, the Arameans gained a foothold. And they established some settlements along the eastern side of the, of the Tigris River. All right? They also overran some Assyrian territory. They settled along the Euphrates River. And we've unearthed extensive records of this long, ongoing conflict between the Arameans and the Assyrians. And thus we find that all during the 10th and 11th centuries BC, this is when Samuel and Saul and then David were alive, that this conflict was central to the Assyrians' way of life, as was the conflict between Israel and the Philistines. This issue dominated the attention of the governmental leadership, as one might expect, to the exclusion of almost all else. And naturally, this long-term war had a great deal to do with setting of their national policies and priorities. Let me set that statement in context so you can see what I'm getting at. Since September 11th, 2001, our American history has been largely defined by our fight against primary, primarily Islamic enemies. Conflicts with Iraq and Afghanistan, our brinksmanship with Iran, and then further east against the atheistic North Koreans. This conflict has spilled over into serious border security issues with our friend and ally, Mexico, that vacillates between stopping the infiltration of terrorists, fighting the drug trade, protecting our national economic security. It's even affected our relationship with modern Israel because their very existence is an irritant to those whom we'd rather be friends with, but who could also very quickly become our enemies. The realities of our war with these Islamic nations and then their desire to reassert Muslim dominance around the world has defined so much of our lives for this first decade of the new millennium. There is no end to this insight. And because of this new reality, we have even created a powerful new federal agency called Homeland Security that was given broad powers to penetrate our privacy for what seems the national good. 
We have millions of closed-circuit TV cameras across our nation with thousands more added each day that record our every move. Immense chains of computers listen into our phone conversations and read our emails, attuned to catch words like bomb, jihad, assassination. We have our shoes x-rayed, our toothpaste confiscated, as we wait in interminably long lines before we can board a commercial jet. Now, I don't say any of this with condemnation or judgment or even political overtones. I say it to explain that although we at times stop noticing it, every era has that feature about it which dominates and dictates our decisions and our direction. And this is especially so for our national leaders. To ignore this is to entirely miss the underlying reasons that history takes the course that it does. And it's very much so with biblical history as well. So in David's era, because Assyria had to fight off the Arameans for at least a century, each side was forced into putting the bulk of their national resources into developing a large and able military. But a military can be used for more than the national defense. It can be used to subjugate and control a nation's own citizens. It can be deployed to conquer its neighbors and to build an empire. It's rare in history that a military is built up and then not used. Or then used and voluntarily decommissioned. So any governmental world leader in David's day was acutely aware that while Assyria and the Arameans were currently preoccupied with their never-ending conflict against one another, all this could end at any moment. And when it ended, there was clear danger that the winner would want to flex their muscles and seek to use their highly developed military capability to enlarge their territory and their influence. So as David was assuming the throne in Israel, the picture up in Mesopotamia was one of the Arameans exerting pressure on both Assyria and Babylonia, and thus these three advanced Mesopotamian nations had each built up substantial and experienced militaries, and each had developed an aggressive culture of war and a national policy that revolved around war. Well, in the region of North Syria, the Arameans were the unquestioned dominant force. They established large areas where the various Aramean tribes grew into substantial populations and thus exported their Aramean culture and gods into the other tribes of that region. Now in reality, the Arameans probably held the position somewhat like that that the American Indians did when the pilgrims first landed on North American soil. In other words, 
Similar to our American Indians, the Arameans were viewed as the original and thus natural tribal landholders of the region. And so from their perspective, their wars were merely about trying to hold on to what they see as always having been theirs. Okay? Their ancient land heritage. In doing so, they undoubtedly absorbed large numbers of survivors of the many tribal clashes that characterized the area in the 12th and 13th centuries BC. But also, without doubt, the Arameans were the overriding culture in the North Syria region and the good fortune of a highly improved climate condition during the 10th century BC as compared to the two or three centuries before that time led to their ability to sustain a robust and a growing population. You know, it's always been, and it remains so by the way, that the growth of any people group is directly proportional to its ability to grow food. That's number one. It was that way for America as well. Okay? This is why the Bible makes such an issue out of explaining that during Israel's entry into the Promised Land, it was a land, how? Flowing with milk and honey. In other words, the combination of terrain and soil conditions and climate, all of which was to be credited to the God of Israel, allowed for abundant food production, which in turn allowed for a population explosion of Israelites. This was not necessarily so for the earlier inhabitants of Canaan, nor was it necessarily so for other regions of Asia, the Middle and Far East, Northern Africa. Thus, various nations grew or declined in population and in power with the chief factor as the ability to feed their people. You know, it happened the same way for the Hebrews down in Egypt. When unwittingly, the Pharaoh of Egypt allowed Joseph to put Jacob's family of refugees into the fertile delta region of Egypt. Just at a time in history when climate conditions changed and improved. In, place, in a place that has naturally fertile soil, the Israelites increased from a population of around 200 when they entered Egypt to around 3 million when they departed four centuries later. It's interesting that Assyrian records indicate that that same improved climate phenomenon was also occurring in Mesopotamia, in the very region that was largely held by the Assyrians. Okay? In fact, the notable kings of that era, several of which, by the way, are mentioned in the Bible, made it a point to say that their ability to finally prevail against the Arameans had much connection to their ability to grow food and thus feed and increase their population. Let's look at Egypt. 
Egypt had been devastated by the loss of the Israelites in the Exodus, and it produced their economic collapse. Okay. The Bible doesn't do justice to the underlying reason why Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so stubbornly refused, from, at least from an earthly political standpoint, to let God's people go, despite the havoc that the Lord was wreaking on Egypt. In Moses' day, you see, the Hebrews formed easily a quarter of Egypt's total population. The Hebrews represented the core of the nation's craftsmen, laborers, builders. Their loss, virtually overnight, en masse, meant that Egypt lost its ability at that moment to build roads, buildings, monuments, dwellings, so on. Even their military suffered. Because now, men who were well-trained warriors would have to put down their spears and take up shovels and hammers. Imagine if in a single 24-hour period, the USA's population declined from our current 300 million to 225 million. Overnight. Imagine if the population that went away consisted of the working class. Carpenters, plumbers, electricians, mechanics, truck drivers, bricklayers, highway workers, railroad engineers, dock workers, communication technicians, steel workers. I could go on and on. That's what happened to Egypt. And by the way, if Tim LaHaye's vision of the rapture is correct, this is what's going to happen to the whole world in general in the near future. Economic collapse invariably produces an agitated population. And that is usually accompanied with political upheaval. These circumstances at the time of the Exodus drove Egypt to become the equivalent of Russia at the end of the 20th century. A one-time superpower suddenly could barely feed their own citizens, provide jobs, fend off invaders, or sustain military and civilian morale. Those who had the means to leave, those with education and maybe some money, they did. Further eroding the nation's ability to survive, let alone prosper, Expansionary ideas of the national leaders had to be put on hold in favor of merely keeping the nation from disintegrating. This was Egypt at the time that Joshua led the Israelites across the Jordan River. But now, at the time of David, some 350 years or so after the Exodus, Egypt had made a comeback. Pharaohs Merneptah and Ramesses III battled the Libyans and other North African nations that had allied themselves with Libya. Egypt prevailed, captured much of the enemy, and as 
the Pharaoh of Jacob's day had done, they placed them in the delta region of Egypt so they would be away from the bulk of the Egyptian population. Once again, the ability to grow food allowed that population of immigrants to rapidly increase. Only this time, Egypt assimilated those people rather than grow paranoid at their size and then subjugate them like they did with the Hebrews. Thus, the captured Libyans and their allies became part of the Egyptian national fabric in the same way that migrant Italians, Chinese, Africans, Hispanics, others came to America as foreigners, but in time most blended in and became Americans. During the time of David, the pharaoh of Egypt allowed a very able man of Libyan descent to begin his rise up the ranks of the Egyptian military command structure. By Solomon's time, this Libyan became a general and went on to assume the throne as pharaoh of Egypt. His name was Shoshenk, also called Shishak, and we find mention of him in the Bible in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles. By the time of the second book of Samuel, Egypt was once again a powerful nation and it had expansion in mind again. The first step was to reunite Upper and Lower Egypt into a single nation under a single government. Once that was accomplished, Egypt looked north and east to the area of Canaan to reestablish a presence that they had enjoyed for centuries before Jacob ever even ventured into Egypt with, to be reunited with his son Joseph. The first place Shoshank looked was at Phoenicia because they were traders and merchants and seafarers and they could give Egypt a wide market for their goods. At the same time, Shishak attempted many forays into Judah to try and establish some forts as Egyptian outposts. He met with little success, at least during David's and Solomon's time. The Phoenicians were generally peaceful, had good relations with any who merely wanted access to trade. In some ways they were like the Philistines, right? in that they weren't so interested in acquiring territory, they just wanted to do business. And since business in that era involved access and use of land and sea trade routes, then most of the Phoenician military action had to do with either acquiring or defending those trade routes in order that marauders and pirates didn't plunder them. And so that nations where those trade lanes traversed didn't extract exorbitant taxes and tolls that essentially took away all of their profit. Egypt wanted a piece of that action. And so there was great synergy by means of Egypt and Phoenicia establishing good diplomatic relations and cooperating on trade. In any case, for economic reasons, Phoenicia 
began expanding into the Mediterranean first with Cyprus. Then they began to move eastward towards North Syria with the weakening of the Arameans. So Sidon and Byblos were um, allies of Phoenicia. And together they extended their influence all the way to Greece. With Egypt's help, together they also dominated the North African coastal region and then on out into the Atlantic Ocean. The bottom line is that Egypt and Phoenicia were economic powerhouses and they controlled the coastal seaports that the Philistines would have liked at their own disposal and that David and Solomon coveted. Well, back to Canaan. The Bible is still our best resource concerning Canaan. Very little is known about the Philistines except through the Bible. A few Egyptian records add to it and then there is minor minor mention of them in the Phoenician records. We know that the Philistines were eventually subdued but not eliminated by David and that their power waned. David was on the verge of consolidating his power in Canaan to a degree that that land had probably never known. So as we open now the second book of Samuel, this was the condition of the known world. And this is what was going to face David as he assumed the throne of Israel as God's anointed king. Now, here's the thing. What we have is essentially a golden moment in history. When the large regional powers who could have been formidable foes against Israel were instead busy elsewhere. Establishing trade, building strategic power bases, creating alliances, coalescing the various political factions of their own nations into something more cohesive and then fighting their immediate neighbors. So Israel at this time was more or less under the radar and left alone by these foreign powers to establish itself as a new nation. David's foe of any consequence was the Philistines. And after spending almost two years among them, he knew pretty he knew them pretty well. David knew their strengths, vulnerabilities, military tactics. He knew their kings, their military leaders, he understood their weaponry. This would allow him to defeat the Philistines and then turn his attention to finally claiming all the territory that Jehovah had promised to Abraham and Moses. And then, of course, to nation building. His son Solomon would take over a relatively stable Israel and built it into a wealthy and admired sovereign state. However, from beginning to end, the ancient history of Israel as a unified nation lasted less than one century. Okay, open your Bibles to Second Samuel chapter 1. Page 334 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Shaul had died. 
David had been two days in Seeklog after returning from the slaughter of the Alamaki, the uh, Amalekites. And on the third day there came a man from Saul's camp with his clothes torn, earth on his head, and he approached David, fell to the ground, and prostrated himself. And David said to him, Where are you coming from? I escaped from the camp of Israel, he replied. Tell me, please, how did things go? asked David. The people have fled the battle, he answered, and many of them are wounded or dead. Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead too. And David asked the young man who told him this, How do you know that Saul and, David, uh, Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? And the young man who told him said, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa when I saw Saul leaning on his spear. The chariots and cavalry were bearing down on him. He looked behind. He saw me. He asked me. I answered, here I am. And he said to me, Where, who, who are you? And I answered, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, I'm in agony. I'm going to die, but I'm still alive. So please stand next to me and kill me. So I stood next to him and killed him. Because I was sure he was so badly wounded he couldn't live. I took the crown that was on his head, the bracelet on his arm. I brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and he tore them and likewise all the men who were with him and they wailed and cried. They fasted until evening for Saul, for Jonathan his son, for Adonai's people and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who had told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I'm the son of a resident foreigner, an Amalekite. And David asked him, How is it? that you weren't afraid to raise your hand to destroy Adonai's anointed? David called one of his young men and said, Go over and kill him. The man struck him down and he died. And David said to him, Your blood's on your own head. Your own mouth convicted you when you said, I killed Adonai's anointed. Then David pronounced this lament over Saul and over Jonathan his son in order to teach the people of Judah archery. The lament has been written down in the book of Yashar. Oh, your glory, Israel, lies dead in your high places. How the heroes have fallen. Don't speak of it in Gath. Don't proclaim it in the streets of Ashkelon. Then the daughters of the Philistines won't rejoice. The daughters of the uncircumcised won't gloat. Mountains of Gilboa, may there be on you no dew, no rain, no fields with good crops, because there the shields of the heroes were dishonored. The shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the dead, from the flesh of the heroes, by the bow of Jonathan did not retreat, or the sword of Saul return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan loved and gracious while alive, weren't separated even in death. They were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel weep over Saul. He clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, put gold jewelry on your clothing. Oh, how the heroes have fallen in the heat of battle. Jonathan killed on your high places. I grieve for you, my brother Jonathan. You meant so much to me. Your love for me was deeper than the love of women. How the heroes have fallen and the weapons of war perished.
David's rise to power can generally be seen as occurring in three distinct steps or stages. First is his time in King Saul's inner court. Is the king's musician, loyal armor bearer, friend to Saul's son, Jonathan. The second stage is David becoming Saul's enemy due to Saul's paranoia that stems from God abandoning the king. And then we see David's flight from the king with Jonathan's help. His forming a mercenary army of 600 disaffected Israelites and then this long period of wandering and hiding to avoid Saul's murderous intentions. These first two stages took place in the last half of the book of 1 Samuel. Now this third stage is David's coronation as king over Judah, the southern portion of Canaan, and then his consolidation of power as he also becomes king over the northern portion of Canaan, the part that was the most loyal to King Saul. And that occurs in a few chapters uh, in Second Samuel. Well, verse 1 opens with, after the death of Saul. The Bible often uses the death of leaders and prominent characters to mark the end of one era and the beginning of another one. And the first words, if you'll remember, of the book of Joshua are, after the death of Moses. And then the first words of the book of Judges are, after the death of Joshua. Thus we see why if one's going to divide this long Samuel scroll into two, this is the logical place. So the essence of these first few words is that a critical page in redemption history has turned. The era of Saul is over, the era of David has begun. It's only Saul's death that makes David free to turn away from his two-year alliance with King Achish of the Philistines and then to turn back to reestablishing his connection first with his own tribe of Judah and then next with Saul's kingdom. It was the third day after David and his men had returned to their devastated village of Zeklok. A bittersweet return it was because happily they had retrieved every last person that the Amalekites had kidnapped, wives, children, the elderly. They recovered all their goods and food that had been taken, even come home with a sizable amount of loot that they took from the Amalekites they had killed in battle to free their families. However, their homes lay in ruins. David and his men had been barred from participating with his hosts the Philistines in battle because the Philistine lords didn't trust David. So he and his men were caught in a political no man's land. As far as David knew, Saul was still in charge of Israel and still determined to kill him. Where was home? Even more, David and his men were in ever increasing anxiety over what had happened to their brethren in Israel at the hands of the Philistines. I mean, it seemed inevitable that the Philistines would be victorious in this great battle, but to what extent? At the moment, they had no idea of the outcome. One can only imagine then the, the sick feeling in the pit of David's stomach when he sees that messenger approach him, breathless, clothing torn, dirt 
caked in his hair. All of these are the typical signs of mourning for a Hebrew, for many Middle Eastern cultures as well. This unnamed man falls at David's feet. He prostrates himself in respect, and David begins to question him. Where has he come from, asked David. From the battle camp of Israel, the man reports. What was the outcome of the battle, asked David. Disaster, says the young man. The Amim, God's people, have fled before the Philistines. Then the worst possible news for David. Jonathan and Saul are both dead. Now David, of course, knows that soldiers often mix fact with scuttlebutt. So he asks the messenger how he knows for sure that Saul and Jonathan are dead. The man goes on to explain what he'd seen with his own eyes. He says that the battle raged and he found himself on Mount Gilboa. And there was the king of Israel, badly wounded, leaning on his spear. Philistine chariots were swirling around them. The Israelites had been overrun by cavalry. Saul called to the young soldier and asked him who he was. And he responds, I'm the son of an Amalekite foreigner who settled in Israel. The king explained he was in agony, he was certain to die, and he wanted this Amalekite lad to kill him. He did. And so the young Amalekite took Saul's crown and his bracelet and he immediately ran here to present them to David along with his report. As they say, there's some days it really doesn't pay to get out of bed. (laughs) Even after one has some time to think about this fellow's story and see that such a thing as he's reported it is highly improbable on a number of levels, this messenger was doomed the minute he presented himself before David. I mean, how could he have known that David had only just finished dispatching the souls of around a thousand Amalekites and that this man's relatives had ransacked David's village? If ever there was a bad time to be an Amalekite, it was this moment, especially while bearing this kind of news. David's emotions are running high. And he seems to believe the Amalekite, which is really the worst thing for this young soldier. And distraught, David and all of his men begin wailing and crying and tearing at their clothing and honest and deep grief. They fasted, they mourned on behalf of Saul and Jonathan and for the catastrophe that had befallen the house of Israel. The bulk of Israelite territory was now under the control of Gentiles. Later, after several hours of mourning, David's grief turned to rage. And he asks the same question of the young man that he says Saul had asked him. Who are you? Where are you from? The man testified against himself yet again. He was the son of an Amalekite foreigner living among Israel. In Hebrew, the boy says he's an Amalekite ger. G-E-R, ger. This is key. Ger means resident alien. This is a person who lives peacefully among the Israelites, but he retains his own tribal identity. 
a ger does have some obligations, but he's not bound to Israel's covenants by God. A ger is not a foreigner who has come to Israel to become a citizen. He's a foreigner who wishes to remain a foreigner. Yet a ger is bound enough that he is expected to know to know Israel's ways and to, to adhere to, to most of them. Now why is all that so important? Because this helps us to understand the significance of a very crucial passage in the book of Ephesians that explains our relationship as believers to Israel. I don't turn there for the sake of time. I'm just going to read it to you. It's Ephesians 2, 10 through 19. Here's what it says. For we are of God's making, created in union with the Messiah Yeshua for a life of good actions, already prepared by God for us to do. Therefore, remember your formal your former state, you Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcised by those who merely because of an operation on their flesh call themselves the circumcised. At that time, you had no Messiah. You were estranged from the national life of Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants embodying God's promise. You were in this world without hope, without God. But now, you who were once far off have been brought near through the shedding of the Messiah's blood. For He Himself is our shalom. He has made us both one and has broken down the wall which divides us by destroying in His own body the enmity occasioned by the Torah with its commands to set forth in the form of ordinances. He did this in order to create in union with Himself from the two groups a single new humanity and thus make shalom. And in order to reconcile to God in both, both in a single body by being executed on a stake as a criminal and thus in Himself killing that enmity. Also when He came He announced His good news Shalom to you, far off, shalom to you, nearby. News that through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, Gentiles, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. On the contrary, you are fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's family. The Amalekite was permitted to live among Israel as a foreigner, a Gentile stranger, but not as part of the family of God. Not as a citizen along with God's people. Could he have become a citizen of Israel? Yes, if he had wished to. But apparently neither he nor his father wanted to be counted as an Israelite. Notice that he does not even identify himself as an Israelite, but rather as an Amalekite. And as I explained in earlier lessons, all Gentiles, all of us, 
are born with the spirit of Amalek. We are born as enemies of God and of His kingdom. The only remedy for us is to accept God's mercy in the form of His Son, Yeshua. And when Gentiles by birth accept the Jewish Messiah by faith, we're no longer estranged from the national life of Israel. As verse 12 of Ephesians 2 says, you were foreigners to... What does it say we were foreigners to? It says we were foreigners to God's covenants. And with whom did God make those covenants? The Hebrews, Israel. A Gair lives outside of Israel's covenants, even though he may live as a foreigner alongside Israel. But one who accepts Messiah Yeshua, says the book of Ephesians, now lives inside of Israel's covenants as a fellow citizen, as a member of God's family. Can you be a Christian and at the same time reject Israel's covenants? Over and over, the Old Testament and New say no. You can't do such a thing because to accept Messiah is to accept Israel's covenants. Outside of Israel's covenants, a Messiah has no meaning. Or as Paul would say in Romans 11, a Gentile is grafted into the covenants of Israel when we are saved by means of Christ. We'll continue this next time.